when the store says it's closing at 7 p.m., I can't just keep it open later uh, just because that's the time people are getting off of work. And they begin to, you know, dip the roller brushes into the white paint. They begin to literally paint over billboards for tobacco and alcohol products. There's a real insistence that if, if what you're selling does not create pleasure, does not create value for the customer, then that's a problem. That's an ethical and moral problem, because then what you're selling is, is actually not of use to anybody. Hello, everyone. Liz here, and welcome to the final episode of the semester of The Medium, The Message. Today, Elisa and I bring you a conversation with ICCIT professor Dan Guadagnolo on consumer culture and Christmas culture. We also bring you some snippets uh, from retail workers that we know on their experiences working during the Christmas season. We hope this episode will bring you some insight on consumer culture from both a PR marketing standpoint as well as a customer and retail worker standpoint. We wish you a bright, happy and jolly holiday season and we cannot wait to reconnect with you in the new year with new episodes and new content and new insight. And here is our conversation with Professor Guadagnolo. Sure. So uh, uh, first, my uh, research in terms of my job and then like more generally the kind of non-academic writing I do. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So I'm an assistant professor in the teaching stream at the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information and Technology, uh, uh, which I think UTM students know better as ICCIT and uh, the Institute houses the DEM program the TCS program, uh, the CCT program, and the professional writing program. And I teach between uh, digital enterprise management and communication culture and technology. Uh, and uh, while I teach in communications, my PhD is actually in history. And so as a historian, I study the 20th century United States. And what I'm really interested in is understanding where and thinking about when marketing as a set of practices uh, uh, and, and things like public relations and advertising too, uh, uh, where we encounter those in our everyday lives and where and how marketing consultants and market researchers do the work of like trying to figure out our needs, wants and desires and how to needle them. And so the people who I write about and the people who, who I research more generally are uh, the folks who run focus groups or uh, the folks who are organizing those like giant survey monkey or, or uh, uh, emails that you might get every couple weeks, or the folks who take all that data and kind of package it to say, okay, here is who the consumer is. Here is who you know, the average UTM student is and here's what they want and here's how we're going to target them. I look at those folks uh, and in particular, I'm, I'm really interested in the work that they do for companies and for organizations that we might consider or might assume exist outside of the market. And so uh, one example of that would be to explore how uh, companies like Kimberly Clark, which owns Kotex, have uh, attempted to push their content into you know, public school classrooms where uh, commercial sponsorship of education or uh, commercial sponsorship of sex education in this uh, uh, instance have you know, shaped what we learned as kids or what we learn as students without us even realizing it. So if, if that's my sort of historical research, looking at how that evolves over the second half of the 20th century, I'm also interested in writing for you know, the broader public about the relationship today between public relations uh, media management and strategy 
and sort of just contemporary life. Like what a question I like to ask myself when, when I'm doing this kind of writing more publicly, so in, in my kind of non-research life is, okay, what are my assumptions about a company like Facebook or a company like Google? And how many of those assumptions are kind of emerging out of their strategy? And where do my opinions either line up with or, 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 or separate from their kind of overall goal as they're planting stories, as they're hiring interlocutors, as they're working with sponsors to shape public narratives about the, their organizations? Yeah, that's super cool. And can you tell us a little bit more about what made you so passionate about your area of study? Like, was it um, a class that you took or something that inspired you to look into this? Uh, sure. So I did my undergrad at York University. I didn't get into UTM, actually. I'm from Brampton. And so I got, uh, when I was in grade 12 and I was applying to, to universities, I got into York. And I went to York. Uh, uh, I wasn't a very good high school student. I got into the history program at York. Uh, uh, and, and they were very flexible. So they were willing to accommodate students with lots of different majors. And I, I took a course that was about like, um, it was called Life, Love and Labor. And it was about social history. So it was like the history of ordinary people. And there, there was a large section in that course about propaganda and about power. And, you know, it really like freaked me out just to read about the kind of scale of influence that media technologies have as, as they're new to us. So if you can imagine, you know, the influence of radio when radio is brand new in, in early 20th century or the influence of television or the influence of satellite technologies or the internet. And so exploring those things historically was like really fascinating to me. And in particular, ordinary people's relationships to them. Uh, and at the same time that I was taking courses like that in my first and second year at York, one of the ways that I like made a little money on the side to pay off tuition was by doing focus groups. And so before, before we all like migrated to, to uh, learning online, right? One of the ways that you could make money as a student at university would be to like answer an ad that someone had put on a bulletin board in Vari Hall at York or in the I building, IB building at UTM because uh, they wanted, you know, 18 to 23 year olds to come in to do a focus group to, you know, taste test new products that they wanted to bring to market. And so I would do lots of these focus groups. And eventually I realized that if I just sort of parroted the question back at the person who was running the, the uh, focus group. So for example, maybe it was for a new kind of pizza pocket. This is a real thing that happened to me. If they asked us if we thought these were really delicious pizza pockets that we'd want after school, I'd be like, this is a really delicious pizza pocket that I would definitely want to eat after school because then they would invite me back for more focus groups. And as a 19 year old student who was like really broke and like working a bunch of jobs to pay off really high tuition, this was also a way to get fed at school. And so um, they kept inviting me back and eventually they were like, do you wanna try running some focus groups? And so I did a couple and I made a little bit more money doing it, uh, but I became really interested in how the people running the focus groups, doing the market research, really just wanted me to confirm their priors so that they could go to whoever had hired them to confirm their priors. And eventually that, that became a kind of, you know, uh, from an experience I had to a kind of set of analytical questions about how marketing, which claims to, you know, be so powerful that it knows what you feel and how you think before you feel or think, um, is, is maybe not built on the most rigorous research possible. Uh, and so from there, I, I got into researching how uh, techniques like focus group, the focus group evolved over time, 
and how you know digital platforms like Facebook were essentially doing the same sort of thing, but instead of using focus groups, were harvesting our likes, our clicks, and our page views. So you've seen, you've studied it both historically and you've been part of this like consumer culture marketing PR uh, conversation yourself with your work. So how would you say it's changed um, since like the 60s, which is kind of where your research focus starts? Um, and what is the current direction of uh, like corporations and companies that you see us going to? So from my understanding of what you've said so far, it's kind of like, marketing is really just at the company's best interest rather than ours. Like they are looking for people to answer questions the way that they want them answered, right? So is that kind of where you see it going where um, our data is being collected for their, um, to their advantage? This is a really interesting question, right? Because when we teach marketing, we say, or we, we define marketing as a process of delivering value to the customer. And, and that has to be something the customer wants. And ethical, uh, like that, whatever you're selling needs to be representative of the wants and needs the customer has, and therefore it has value to the customer, right? And um, uh, in, in, in the most like, recent iterations of very popular marketing textbooks, there's a real insistence that if, if what you're selling does not create pleasure, does not create value for the customer, then that's a problem. That's an ethical and moral problem because then what you're selling is, is actually not of use to anybody. And so that is always presented at the highest level, right? Uh, that's where the market becomes a moral or ethical phenomenon. Of course, like in reality, when you sell something to someone, we, we have this what we call post-purchase regret, which is just a kind of universal experience that the consumer is never quite as satisfied as they, they think they would be. And so your, your initial question is, is asking, okay, you know, you've looked at it from the 60s to today, you've participated in today, where is it going? Well, as a historian, I, I'm very bad at predictions. I, 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 I would not endeavor to make one of those, but one, habit I have noticed in marketing and in the kind of history of marketing um, uh, that I'm always fascinated by, because it, it, it's caught up in ideas about technology too, is the, the marketing profession is obsessed with the always already new. Meaning that if you go through, and I these I have two wonderful ROP students doing this right now, if you go through, uh, you know, 40 years of uh, the American Marketing Association's newsletter, you just constantly find these headlines that are like psychographics colon changing the marketing game or uh, uh, moving beyond demographics or uh, um, you know neuromarketing, the latest frontier. And if, when you're a historian, you become a sort of very attentive to where red flags are. And one big red flag as a historian is when uh, a field is constantly saying, guys, this is the newest thing ever, finally we will be able to fully divine desire. And so marketing over the past 60 years, and, and this goes back to the early 20th century too, has always been about, you know, understanding through and through what's actually going on in our minds, our minds as consumers, as ordinary people. But the kind of anxiety that's the heart, that the heart of all market research is that we can never really know. We can never really know why someone wants something, why they don't want something. Um, uh, and, and why that opinion or perspective might change on the value. 
And so for me, the kind of recurrent theme of this new technology, this new strategy will finally fully capture and manage the consumer that we were uh, figure that we all want to both deliver value to and extract capital from. Uh, it, it, it teaches you that it's a fiction. So even today, when we see headlines about, you know, as I mentioned earlier, forms of neuromarketing that are meant to capture where you are, are, are sort of uh, experiencing desire without even feeling it. Well, they were saying that in 1982 about psychographics, right? And you can look back at this pattern and it, it teaches you to be, I think, be wary of, of where and how the profession sort of imagines itself going. Uh, and to recognize that it has a very shallow sense of its own history. It's really interesting how you were talking about marketing, putting headlines about the latest new, because I remember talking to my brother about the latest iPhones that have come out and how more recently, like people online have been saying how there haven't been that many changes and yet they seem to like market it in a way where it's like really new and like really different when there actually isn't that much different. And so I don't know, like I'm just kind of reflecting about marketing and how sometimes like we feel like we need the product, um, but like we don't actually need it. And it's just kind of like they're smart marketing, I guess, like for yourself as a shopper, um, do you usually keep these in mind as you're shopping and how does that kind of inform your decisions when buying things? Oh, interesting. And of course, so the newness I'm talking about in like, uh, you know, the marketing news, newsletters, something like that, that's their excitement over new technologies. Um, someone who, who is in digital marketing or who works as a, strat a marketing strategist or is a consultant, um, it's not quite the kind of cadre of hidden persuaders that we often imagine it might be. A lot of folks who do this work, like, you know, also believe in it. And, and uh, I want to understand why and how that belief works. That I don't want to, I don't want to argue that, you know, they're, uh, they're pulling gotchas on us. And, and your question is really cool because it brings us to the consumer, right? We are sold on the always already new as well. And so kind of both sides of the equation are always experiencing this. Uh, and, and something I try to, I often talk to students about is it's not that like, once you can pick up on the kind of rhetorical tools of, of advertising messages, because they're, they're very often the same kinds of things. This is a line extension. This is a minor revision to uh, the processing power of this, this tech, or we're going to add a seventh camera lens, right? Uh, I think that, that it's important to note that like you can pick up on those things but one still experiences desire, right? Like I still like buying new stuff because I exist in culture the same way that my students do, the same way that my brothers do and my parents do. And so uh, bringing a kind of critical eye to an advertising claim, or what maybe we should call it instead as an advertising promise that this, this, this product is magical and it's going to create a sense of connection or a sense of authenticity for you. Um, uh, they're, they're really hard to dismiss as people, whether, you know, you have a PhD or you've worked in sales or you work in strategy. Anytime someone is promising to fulfill something for us is a kind of really profound promise. So I'm not, I don't think I'm any good at resisting those things myself. Uh, I'm just more familiar with the kinds of recurrent strategies or, or, or what to expect uh, uh, when a new claim is made by a company or a revision to a product as you described.
So often these claims are framed in targeted ads. So recently I've literally, this happens to me all the time. I swear sometimes I'll just think about something and it like shows up on my Instagram or like when I'm scrolling on Facebook. Um, and I'm, we were, we talked a lot about this, this semester in our various podcast episodes. And that's like the infringement on privacy with data collection by platforms like Instagram, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. So we were just wondering what is, as like someone that works um, as like a marketing specialist or like is knowledgeable in marketing as well as like PR culture, um, can you talk about the impact of targeted ads and whether you also believe that it's like an infringement of privacy or if it's kind of justifiable in some way? I mean, I think it's hard to see that side of the equation when you literally feel like someone's listening to you um and like having no control over that in the current day um how would you comment on that sure um i want to answer this historically and i actually want to answer it with a story um and so uh, this is i'm gonna do a bad historian thing i'm gonna get a couple dates wrong but in around the spring of, of 1990 uh uh in harlem the sort of uh, 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 leader of uh, Abyssinian Church, a very famous uh, 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 site of sort of intellectual, cultural, and, and, and social movements in, in uh, African American history. Uh, I think his name is Calvin Butts. He leads his parishioners after church out of uh, uh, out of Abyssinian into busy street corners. And you know, it's the 90s. It's like uh, uh, it, it it is full. You can just imagine like lots of older ladies, lots of grandchildren. Uh, and what they do is they set up at busy street corners in Harlem with these buckets of white paint and these big roller brushes. And they begin to, you know, dip the roller brushes into the white paint. And they begin to literally paint over billboards for tobacco and alcohol products. Uh, they do this because they are protesting the over uh, 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 saturation of tobacco and alcohol in advertisements in African-American communities, in geographic communities, right? We're talking about space here. And what they do instead is uh, they begin to paint these sort of gorgeous works of community art over the billboards. So my very favorite uh, is, is a, a happy birthday to mother Clara Hale, who had ran Hale House in Harlem, which was a respite home for children born with HIV during the late 1980s. So a kind of beautiful remaking of a massive billboard ad uh, into the community space that it ran. And they begin to call this, this kind of movement that emerges with uh, um, uh, Butts and his parishioners, they begin to call for community control, community control over the kinds of advertising images that are entering into their community, uh, into their spaces, the places they live, they go to church, they have their lives. This happens following about four months after the launch of a tobacco brand called Uptown Cigarettes that was explicitly, it was created by RGR Nabisco, a big cookie uh, tobacco conglomerate in the 1980s. Uh, and it was uh, created explicitly to target African-American youths. And all this data is publicly available through the industry documents archive uh, at the UC system. So all of this was disclosed through a, a series of uh, major state level lawsuits in the United States that forced lots of tobacco companies to hand over all their documents. 
And Uptown and their kind of early ideation is imagined as a product that will target like young African-American men who are down on their luck, um, who are in their teenage years. And on the assumption that because brand switching is, is very uncommon, we tend to stick to the brands we like. If you could capture young African-American men in their early teens as smokers, they would stay with your product for much of their lives. Now, when Butts begins to make this argument and the, the, this kind of protest action is happening, uh, the reason those billboards are located in mostly African-American communities and are heavily concentrated, billboard companies themselves are concentrating billboards in those communities as well, uh, is because uh, advertising corporations and the billboard companies were using census data to locate where marginalized communities, in particular Black communities in the United States, lived, and then locating their billboards there. Because these companies knew that lots of tobacco and lots of alcohol companies wanted to target African-American communities. And so, you know, this is 30 years ago, 1990, 31 years ago. And what does it tell us? Well, as an example, it shows us that our data, so the census in the United States is done every decade, that is publicly gathered data and publicly controlled, uh, 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 administered data, is used, is harvested by various kind of middlemen organizations, whether it's a billboard company, whether it's a market researcher, to create an infrastructure where certain kinds of companies can just absolutely flood a community with their advertisements. Now, we live today in a kind of, you know, a digital economy wherein I don't get to see what any of the ads that YouTube get look like. And you don't get to see the kinds of ads I look, that I get. But if you can imagine, like, moving through an urban center into the different sort of neighborhoods and communities within an urban center like New York City or like Toronto, in noticing how quickly the billboards change, I, I, I can't help but wonder what that teaches us or, or what that can help us see about what targeting is. And so these protests were so powerful, you know, they made the New York Times, no company, no billboard company or alcohol company dared press charges uh, through uh, uh, the New York City Police Department because they'd be arresting little old ladies in their rankings, right? But it forced this language of target marketing into public discourse, so much so, so that the cover of Adweek, uh, uh, just ahead of the 1990 census, said, we have this awesome power as advertisers and marketers. We get to deliver what people want, but are we using that power in dangerous ways? Are we exacerbating health inequalities uh, amongst all uh, communities that are already punished in infinite other ways by capitalism? And so in the early 1990s, well before the sort of mass adoption of the internet, uh, or even Web 2.0, which is where the harvesting of our engagement can really begin to happen, we have what is essentially an argument over data sovereignty. We want to control the ads that enter our community because we're concerned that these ads are generating unfair and disparate health outcomes for communities of color. They were right, and marketers agreed with them. Now, again, the always already knew of a new technological platform meant, means that all of that gets washed away. When I gave this talk, um, the sort of tobacco company representatives who were at this marketing conference I was at just refused to believe it was history. It's all there publicly available in the archive. But it's an example of the inequities that emerge when, when our data is harvested 
and then used to essentially deliver some ads to some folks and some ads to others. Regarding the point about people having different adverti- different targeted ads, like for example, me, Liz, you, um, we, we saw one of your courses that is popular as VCC 236 and how you talk about the relationship of race and class and gender to consumer capitalism. And so um, are there any differences, uh, for example, in those like targeted ads between like the race, class and gender and how that impacts um, consumer culture? Sure, and I should know. I've, I've, uh, I taught VCC 236, it's a fantastic class uh, uh, for two or three years, and I've now moved to CCT. So I don't, I don't teach this course anymore, but consumer culture is so in my sort of teaching and research DNA that it doesn't go anywhere. Um, uh, and, and so your question asks me about how race, class, and gender kind of manifest in marketing. Is that another way to put it? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the kind of gold standard uh, in a a, a marketing plan or marketing strategy is a homogenous market. And so uh, you can think of a homogenous market as being like, well, how can we ensure our ad is most effective? Well, it's making sure that our ad is delivered to as many like individuals as possible, because if we've tailored our ad to speak to this particular kind of person, gendered, racialized and classed in particular ways, we don't necessarily want our ad to go to another kind of person who we might not be as effective with. And so um, uh, uh, marketers and corporations have used many strategies to try to produce homogenous markets. One example uh, has been in classrooms, the kinds of marketing that attempts to sort of seep into public school education wants into public school education because you have you know, in a high school here in Ontario, four grades, you know, everyone's going to be aged roughly 13 to 18. They're going to have shared lived experiences. And if your high school is in a particular space, of course, in a particular time, they're going to likely have some shared socio-demographic elements as well. They might even have parents who have similar jobs. That kind of homogenous market is very, very appealing because it means we're capturing a certain kind of consumer. It's a process of segmentation. When we talk about race and gender in this process, they're they're central to it. Think about how we imagine the general or normal market. Uh, In the 1960s, you have this push towards the segmentation of the consumer marketplace. And segmentation simply means to kind of slice and dice up like a pie. Well, the general market actually never really goes away. In my research, in, in the book I'm working on now, I make the argument that the general market endures as a representation of normativity. And so when you, as a a corporation, decides who they're going to target their ads at, when they want to target a particular product ad, suddenly you have, you know, the the gay, lesbian, and trans market, you have the African-American market, and then you have the mass or general market. By pulling difference out, you are able, as a company, to essentially kind of get off the hook for the advertising images that you begin to produce for the mass market. Suddenly it's perfectly fine if Life Magazine or Time Life Magazine has ads that only have white people in them because the assumption is that African-Americans can be found reading Jet Ebony or Essence. Or uh, uh, um, LGBTQ consumers can be found reading The Advocate, which like has really never done anything uh, uh, for lesbian, bi or trans consumers, right? And so what I have been really fascinated by and the kind of story that I'm trying to tell in this research, in this current research project, 
is how does the segmentation, rather than creating this kind of uh, opportunities for difference to flourish under capitalism, actually just reify the power structures that existed before segmentation existed, uh, uh, segmentation came into being by essentially saying that, you know, the mass, the normal, the general is going to remain white, is going to remain heterosexual, is going to remain, you know, middle, lower middle class. And so that that's one place I see it. And, and I, I, I also, I'm also very interested in how that shapes the kinds of ads that we see. So again, like imagining a mass market magazine flipping through and, you know, do you see the faces of people of color? Well, only very recently have we began taking that kind, those kinds of questions seriously around representation. And partly it is because segmentation essentially lit lots of corporations off the hook. Yeah, so we read quite a bit of your work um, on PR and news, especially regarding COVID-19. And you were writing about how uh, the headlines in news articles were suggesting that the CERB benefit was encouraging like workers to stay off the job. But then, you know, the headline was just kind of manipulating the story. And like as um, a news publication, we aim to be like the voice of UTM students, which means we can't be the voice of students everywhere because some of the things we talk about literally only relate to UTM students and as you just touched upon um like different um magazine companies like the times and etc cetera, etc cetera, have different target audiences let's say so we're really interested as well this year about um how journalism can be ethical and inclusive and so how sh how do you think news networks um kind of address being ethical or fail to dress to be ethical? And how can we, as a student newspaper, if you were to give your piece of advice, work and grow in a way that is in the best interest of our community, whether that's our targeted community or just the general community? I, it's, I mean, it's a really big question, right? And no one has answered it well. Um, what I, like my perspective, because I don't research news necessarily, I'm interested in my work in PR on how like first movers, in, in that case, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses, how their PR statements were becoming the basis of articles, but the PR st statement was inaccurate and like fundamentally untrue, but they were managing to get their ideas kind of into culture so that we all suddenly agreed that the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit which was really important to a lot of people that kept them afloat through the pandemic uh, was actually bad. And so I, I wrote that because I, I could see parallels to the early history of public relations and the kind of fears and anxieties that lots of folks had around whether or not PR was going to be used for fundamentally anti-democratic purposes, which in that piece, I make the argument that it is. Um, something I think about a lot historically is how an organization and if an organization comes to actually represent the community itself. And so in the history of marketing, you have lots of companies, it's very small marketing consultancies open up that will say like, you know, we specialize in working class consumers. We specialize in LGBTQ consumers. We specialize in African-American consumers. We specialize in the women's market. And then you go look at the, from the data available, you go look at who's been hired. <laughs> And you're like, oh, wait a minute, your, your company says you do this, but you have no real connection, no real relationship to the community that, in the case of marketing, you package, you promote, and you sell. 
If you are a consultancy that specializes in a certain segment, you're literally selling that consumer market. You might represent them um, in that you are explaining who they are to your merchandiser client. At the end of the day, you're interested in getting a contract from that merchandiser and then pushing that product to the people you claim to represent. It's not representation, it is packaging, promoting, and selling. For a newspaper, I think that having uh, uh, a, a, a team that actually emerges from and is in conversation with the community you serve, that's to me what it means to serve. You know, again, I'm not in news, but I am in university education. The reason I wanted to teach at UTM is because I'm from Peel. I, like my parents did not go to university and where I did my PhD, everyone I worked with, their parents did go to university. My father was an immigrant to Canada. Most of my students are either immigrants themselves or their parents were immigrants. I was, my older brother went to university and I got to go to university, but my parents didn't. And like most of my students at UTM, I was new to university life. And so for me to serve and to be kind of an, an ethical actor within an institution is to be cognizant of and think through all of the ways in which like my experience is parallel to my students and gives me a bridge to them. And so as a newspaper or as, as news networks, do the communities that we, are, are we actually part of the communities we sell or we serve, I should say, are we actually part of the communities we serve or are they simply the communities that we are selling advertisements to? That's the difference. That's really good. Yeah, and do you think it's possible for public relations to be trustworthy or ethically sound or do you feel like it's inherent for them to be only thinking about a corporation's economic agenda? Depends on who PR is being used for. Like we live in a very complex world, right? And getting messages to the people who you want to get messages to is really hard. And so public relations as a set of tools is a way to communicate effectively in an media saturated and information saturated world. Now, if what you're communicating is a set of uh, political positions that serve your population and your popula population is, let's say, much smaller or much wealthier than the kind of average folks who are also accessing this source, then that's not particularly democratic, it's not particularly ethical, and one's eyes should be open to that. I think that one of the most that public relations is a set of tools and we have to think really carefully about our, our social and economic location and our goals as an organization before we put them to work. Kind of shifting our conversation to more Christmas related stuff or holiday related stuff rather. Um, Elisa and I came across this phenomenon of the Christmas creep and it baffled us a little bit and it's pretty much um, how companies uh, increase the time span of when they can profit through like marketing something as like holiday sales um, and each year it's seemingly becoming earlier and earlier uh, which honestly now that I think about it I have noticed that a little bit I worked in retail for five years and I swear to god it just keeps getting closer to Thanksgiving <laughs> it's like the day after Thanksgiving it's Christmas um yeah so things like christmas music and christmas lights and holiday sales um and preparing for different types of uh sale events like black friday and boxing day and things like that um what do you what do you think about this and how does it play into your knowledge of marketing and pr oh it's exhausting firstly um i think people want a break and and there's almost certainly market research on how to collaborate that how to produce that kind of break um 
I would say, you know, it makes sense. Like we can, we can, you've already hit the nail on the head. We can see why this happens. Um, uh, companies require different kinds or, or, or merchandisers or advertisers, I should say, require different kinds of punctuations in the calendar. And that kind of quick pivot to a new season uh, is a, a way to hopefully increase your sales, but also sort of create a, a permission to folks to do this kind of buying, to, to engage in these kinds of commercial activities. I think one of the most interesting things about this podcast that you're putting together is that you're drawing in workers and consumers and i can't help but wonder i don't want to turn the question on you but i often think about like the actual experience of working through that extremely fast pivot when i lived in the united states from thanksgiving advertising and merchandising to black friday the worst day to work retail uh in the u.s to like literally the following monday now it's christmas um while this might increase margins and like improve sales drastically and also give consumers a sense of you know uh, again permission to what they what they want to do or, or what they might be allowed to do as buyers um, it also just seems like a grindy experience for people who work in retail when i was a teenager uh, and i worked at uh, like mall jobs or, or i worked in in uh, like consumer facing jobs for for other organizations I, we didn't really have Black Friday as, as present as it is today. It's really migrated over the past, I think, 15 years or so, um, or 10 years or so. And I, I, I can't imagine what it does to folks who have to work through that. That, that is mostly where my mind goes when I think about the, the extension of Christmas Creek. And this is where I thought I would weigh in my experience working retail through Christmas time and Thanksgiving and Boxing Day and all of that. So I worked in retail for four years um, through 10th, 11th and 12th grade of high school as well as my first year of university and a tiny bit of my second year. Um, and I learned a lot by working retail, especially in that first year as a 15 year old. I learned a lot about how to communicate with strangers, a lot about consumer culture, about how we shop, how others shop, shopping habits, how to save money, how to handle money. So yeah, I worked in a bakery at a grocery store and it was an experience. I made lots of friends, also had some unforgettable, both good and bad experiences. But towards the end, I became painfully aware of kind of the troubles that came along with working retail and retail stores. So during Christmas time, what would happen is we would have these huddles every year. And having been there for years, I, you know, always had these huddles to look forward to. And from year to year, I noticed that instead of the huddles being some kind of like, hey guys, we're doing great, we're you guys are overwork, underpaid, but y'all are great. Thank you so much for working with us. It would always be about last year we made $110,000 in sale. Let's make it to 150 this year. That was always the narrative and the dialogue was let's get these sales up. And as I noticed with every holiday, Thanksgiving, Boxing Day, um, what other holidays are there? <laughs> Easter, like literally even for... Uh, football Sunday what's it called Super Bowl Sunday we literally had like sales that we needed to top from previous years and what was funny or actually terrifying and part of the reason why I left that job I left right kind of six months into COVID I want to say is that um 
The sales, this narrative of like topping sales did not stop when COVID began. So as an example, stores started to have kind of limits on how many people could enter the store, but the manager of the store found that with the limits, our sales went down because not as many people want, like there were lines outside the store and not as many people came because they didn't want to stand in line. So instead, what she did is she kind of ignored the governmental rules and regulations on how many people to let into the store and it was chaos i stayed my last day was thanksgiving of last year of 2019 yes 2019 no 2020 and i was like this is the day i get covid because it was so crowded it was so busy we were overworked we were underpaid we were like no social distancing whatsoever Um, It was terrifying and I realized that at the end of the day, the store and the company and the whole entire organization only cared about their sales as like literally so much more than they cared about our well-being and like a little, you know, uh, we had these, what what were they called, like uh, team member appreciation week and we would get like a t-shirt and I'm like, girl, a t-shirt is not going to make up for like what you've put me through to give you you know to get keep the store running because what i think organizations fail to realize but is really the forefront and the most important thing that has to do with running a retail shop is that the retail workers you know the ones that get paid the less the least without them the whole entire store would not be able to succeed or exist or persist and so i think that's a really important um thing to consider and as i worked there for four years it just was at the top of my mind and I was just thinking about how I felt like I was being used like I was this robot meant to you know get the product out so that it sells so that there's more sales and in no way was I compensated with those sales it's not like I made a commission off of like the banana bread that you know little Susan was buying absolutely not right and then another thing that I noticed was and I think I really wanted to point out in my little speech right now is that um you as a retail worker you realize what kind of consumers there are what kind of customers there are and I became so aware of the kind of customer that I wanted to be like I never wanted to be the customer that doesn't say thank you or doesn't appreciate someone's hard work or doesn't say thank you even when you know what they want isn't available or doesn't get angry like that is the customer that I've become and that is something that I you know when I'm cashing out at the grocery store now I'm like thank you so much have a wonderful day right right back at you because that is so important um, and appreciating and giving your little moments to retail workers is so important. So I hope I leave that with you for this holiday season, for the Boxing Day. I will be looking forward to the Best Buy fights on my Twitter timeline. But other than that, please be safe out there and be nice to retail workers. Now I have two really short interviews for you with retail workers that are friends of ours, of Elisa and I's. Um, and I just wanted to share their experience with you guys and hopefully it'll enlighten you as much as mine has. My name is Michelle and I worked in fast food for about a year from January 2017 to December 2017. Um, I just wanted to keep my place of work a little bit more um, confidential because they're not um, a really big or well-known company, but I feel like it still applies. I didn't work during the holidays, but there was a busy season um, around the summertime just because of the food that um, this company was making was more geared for warmer seasons. So during the summer season, um, it would just get really busy. So 
we would show up for work um, about an hour before the place opened and we would just start prepping a ton of food that we would need to sell that day and by the time the place opened um, and by like early morning to noon the place was packed we had lines going around the block um, and usually this is fine because we can prepare the food rather quickly and you know just kind of keep the customers moving along but sometimes we would have people who would come in with really big orders with a lot of modifications now where i worked um modifications were not necessarily allowed um, if you wanted to um, replace something due to an allergy or you wanted to use like a gluten-free option that's fine but some people wanted to come in exchanging um like whole meals and trying to make like pretty much like um, a custom meal without the custom price so the funny thing about these customers is that they would come in during our lunch rushes when we were packed with customers and they would come in with giant orders with a bunch of modifications and they would always complain like, you know, like I'm interning for this big company and my boss wants these modifications and I can't go back without these modifications so I need you guys to do them and um, we would kind of be caught in the middle and deciding do we break our rules for a couple of rich financial district guys or do we have to you know keep our cool and kind of get the intern to take back the the, the dishes that were closest to what they what her bosses wanted right um so i pretty much describe my experience working on during the summer seasons or like during busy season as hectic and something that i would want customers to know is you know if a store has rules then there are rules right um they're set in place by the higher ups they're not set in place by the people who are serving you um so don't take your anger on them even though they might be enforcing it and they might be really frustrating you it's not fair to them you know we weren't paid that much at the time um and our bosses didn't were not happy with the minimum wage increase um we're dealing with a lot too uh, one particular story aside from like the financial district guys um, some people came in pretending that there was a fly in their food um, so they would come in with their food pretty much all gone and complain that a fly had flown into their food so they wanted a refund we gave them a refund just because we didn't want to bother and start a fuss but don't be a carrot don't be that guy right like if you finish most of your food then just let it go right especially since this place is a little bit smaller and you know, we don't have giant corporations backing us, right? It was just a small little little shop. So, yeah, I hope this, I guess, can, can explain to customers that, you know, servers have souls too and um, to just be nice to them during busy holidays. Hi, my name is Brenda and I currently work at a bookstore. If I were to describe my experience working around the holidays in one word, it would be um, underwhelming. I think a lot of people have been saying that they would rather go to Amazon and just get things delivered to their doorstep versus having to step foot into a mall, especially uh, as the pandemic is still going on. Um, so with the convenience of things being delivered within one or two days, like it just makes more sense for people to go 
and buy things online, especially when the selection is wider online than it would be in a physical bookstore. Um, I think shoppers around the holidays, like especially don't realize how overworked sales associates are. Um, so at the specific bookstore that I work at, I work from open to close, which is 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, I am there by myself all day. Um, so as much as, um, you know, people come in after work and they like, like to peruse and take the time uh, closer to 7 p.m. when I'm closing to like look around, like I would love to be able to accommodate everyone, but I am overworked. I've been there all day and like when the store says it's closing at 7 p.m. I can't just keep it open later uh, just because that's the time people are getting off of work. Um, so on one of my shifts a mom and her uh, little girl came in and they were picking up two toys and the mom was asking her daughter uh, how much the toys would be together uh, just to get her to practice addition and like numeracy skills. So that was really cute. And she was also trying to get her to count out the amount of change that was needed. And uh, the girl was looking for the amount that was written on the coins. She couldn't find it. She like didn't know how much each coin was worth. And so when she handed all the coins to me, I counted it out. Um, she had given me two quarters, a dime and a nickel. So that in total, that was 65 cents. So I was counting it out like 25, 50, 60, and then 65. And her mom was like, oh, like, you know, that's how you count coins. Like, you just, you have to add all of them together like that. And the little girl was like, how was I supposed to know that that's what the coins were worth? Like, that the, the quarter didn't have a, a moose on it. Like, how was I supposed to know any of that? Um, anyway, it was just really, really cute. Like, the mom was just practicing with her daughter, like, how to add things up and how to calculate costs and um, count out change. And I think that was just like so cute because she was exercising those um, skills outside of school and just making sure that her daughter like knew um, that like the value of money and different uh, the value of different coins. I'd like to thank Michelle and Brenda for sharing their stories with us. Such different yet somewhat similar conclusions. Uh, thank you for that. Professor Guadagnolo is currently working on a monograph about the history of market segmentation. He's also interested in a project on the economics and sponsorships of textbooks at the university level. Um, we'd like to say thank you to Professor Guadagnolo for taking the time to speak with us today. You can all connect with him on Twitter at Dan underscore Guad, that's G-U-A-D, or by email daniel.guadagnolo at uturana.ca. A happy and healthy new year to all from the Medium team. We wish you all the best and can't wait to share new episodes in 2022. Please check out our final issue at themedium.ca and share your thoughts and experiences with us on Instagram at the message UTM.